Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we'll be interviewing my brother, former NBA star and cannabis magnet, Al Harrington. But before we get to Al Harrington, I wanted to talk to you about the bombshell reporting that came this past week from ProPublica. If you haven't checked this out, this is a new series on how the ultra-wealthy like Mike Bloomberg and Donald Trump and Warren Buffett, well, maybe not as much Donald Trump, but how people that he know who he claims to be rich like avoid taxes. You should definitely read this piece. In short, an anonymous source shared the tax filings of some of the country's wealthiest Americans. They found that the wealthiest Americans largely avoid taxes and their effective rate what they actually pay as a percentage of how much they actually made or how much their wealth actually grew was often a fraction of what people like you or I pay. And while that's not necessarily a bombshell per se, what is new in this reporting is the detail in which they describe how the wealthiest Americans actually pull this off. Now, I got to be 100 with y'all. Uh, my initial reaction was who were their accountants? Because I want to be rich like this and don't want to have to deal with the IRS every month like I do now. But I guess that's the point. A small business owner like me, both more likely to be audited than the uber wealthy, and I'm also paying a higher share of what I take home to my family than Jeff Bezos, Michael Bloomberg, Elon Musk, and Warren Buffett. We spent four years obsessed with Donald Trump's tax returns, but I hope we're just as obsessed with understanding how we appropriately tax wealth in this country because the system we have facilitates these massive concentrations of wealth such that the burden of paying taxes in this country really does fall on small business owners and higher income owners like me and many of you. Also worth noting, given that we've developed a tax system based on taxing income and work as opposed to taxing wealth, the wealthiest Americans don't themselves pay the payroll taxes that have become a fact of so many of our lives. So we're talking Social Security taxes, Medicare taxes, and other withholdings that actually fund the federal government. I know these folks give away a lot of money, and they're job creators. But so are many of us who create jobs and support our churches and favorite charities every day. So I know lots of you will say, well, they figured it out good for them. And I actually agree with some of that view. Because I want to have that type of wealth one day to sustain my family too. Just being honest. But when you step back and assess the unfairness of it all to small business owners who pay out of their noses and rarely, if ever, get any relief from the federal government, it should fire you up. Or high-income earners who may live comfortably but derive their income largely from their labor instead of assets and are taxed heavily for it, you do wonder why there isn't a minimum wealth tax and a massive tax on assets that people pass on to their children. We should all find ways to build wealth, but we also need to be contributing fairly to the country we all want to see. And that's that on that. Now on to a show that you won't want to miss with my brother, Al Harrington. Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, man, this is a special interview for me because I grew up watching, I'm not calling you old, but I did grow up watching Al Harrington, who he was one of my favorites, one of the last true people who could shoot the three, post up, do it all. And now he's doing everything else in his career. What's going on, man? How you feeling? Good, man. How you doing today? Man, I'm more blessed than I deserve. I you gotta you gotta know I was a I was a huge Pacers fan growing up. It was weird because my favorite player actually was Reggie Miller. Wow. And so I just appreciated all 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 that y'all did back in the day, man. So thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, bro. 
For sure. We I was just just joking with you a little bit, asking you about the range of jerseys behind uh, your head over there. But we start each one of our episodes by having our guests walk us through the arc of their career. And I think most people remember your NBA career, but I'm more interested in understanding when your professional, when in your professional basketball career, you understood that you wanted to be an entrepreneur, uh, specifically a cannabis entrepreneur. And what was that point? Yeah, man. I mean, you know, so with my career, right, you know, coming out of high school, you know, not going to college and all that, you don't know a lot, right? You know, you, you come into the league first year, you don't have time to think about entrepreneur activities because you're first just trying to figure out, do you even belong in the league? Right. And, you know, trying to get respect to your peers and different things like that. And a lot of times, unless you're like the number one pick or you come into an organization that needs you to be that in the beginning, you know, it takes two or three years, maybe four years to really just establish yourself as a professional and like, you know, in regards to, you know, uh, the coaches and your teammates knowing exactly what they're going to get out of you, what's your limitations, what are the things you could be better at and what they could just can expect from a, you know, a nightly basis. So, you know, navigating through my career, you know, I could have been a pacer my whole career for the most part. You know, I'd always say me and Jeff Foster of our era was two guys that like literally could have played, you know, for one team. Mm -hmm. But for me, um, you know, being young, and, you know, I always say the thing about athletes is that we don't really have a concept of reality, right? We all feel like we're Superman. So, you know, I thought I should start. You know, I'm like, you know, I done paid my dues for four or five years and six years. And we've had, you know, had a lot of success. And I was almost a six man of the year my last year in Indiana. But I wanted to, you know, let my wings, you know, spread my wings and fly. So I flew to the Hawks. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it had a crash landing. You know, that's when I first learned that, you know, the grass is not always greener. You know, yeah, I don't see the Hawks jersey behind you, man. It's not back there, bro. Each <laughs> <laughs> one is not back there. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I went there and, you know, that just, it, you know, I, I just feel like most of my life, you know, and through my basketball journey, it was a bunch of life lessons. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Like each stop and each situation uh, taught me something and that uh, uh, allowed me to apply it into my everyday life now, right? Or just as I've grown as an adult and, and even into an entrepreneur and businessman. So throughout most of my career, uh, you know, you just have a lot of fun. And, you know, for me, like the day where I started to change my mindset was in, you know, uh, 2008, when my financial advisor had come to see me to go over like my, uh, you know, my expenses over the last six months. And uh, at this time, I don't know, I just decided I wanted to have a lot of fun. So he just showed, <laughs> he was just like, bro, like you keep doing this, you know, it's not going to work. You know what I'm saying? He's like, not going to work for me. You know, his biggest thing, he's very proper. He's like, not one athlete has ever went broke on my watch. And you're not you going to first. He was like, I'll fire you first. And, uh, you know, at that point, it just made me start looking at looking at things totally different, especially my finances and learning more and different things like that, which in turn, you know, obviously as athletes, you know, mostly we always get, you know, we get the worst business deals, to be honest. Right? I always um, wondered, like, who, who they just come to y'all with all time. We're going we gonna to put a, a, a donut shop on top of a car wash, make a million dollars. Worst, though. We get the absolute worst deals, bro, you know? And you're constantly bringing it to your advisor. And he's like, bro, what is this? So he finally got to the point. He's like, bro, if you really want to do a deal, like you got to do your own due diligence. Tell me why you want to do the deal. And that helped me, right? Because now if I think of something I want to do, I do my own little bit of research. I Google it, blah, 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 blah. And then I come to him and say, this is why I think I should do this deal. You know, so that's when I would say my entrepreneurial spirit started. 
And it's kind of just propelled me, you know, into, you know, where I am today. And when you think about the, you know, obviously I could have coached, mm-hmm. had some uh, commentator uh, opportunities in front of me, you know, because, you know, I, pretty, I speak pretty well or whatever. But, you know, I found cannabis, you know, and, you know, I found it in 2011, you know, so it helped my grandmother, you know, deal with her glaucoma. You know, uh, she's trying. Now, you found it in 2011. You you trying to tell me you weren't smoking back during the when you were hooping? Bro, I was not smoking, man. I didn't. I, I had smoked one time, I think, in two thousand and nine. If my math oh, you, is correct, yeah, you could tell you not to smoke. If you can remember, like, I, if somebody was like, "When was the last time you smoked?" Though I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, "I don't even know." When <laughs> <laughs> the last time I smoked, I tell you five minutes ago. But, yeah, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so I, I wasn't a smoker. Um, I was always afraid of cannabis just because of the way I grew up. You know, war on drugs. You know, seeing like kids in my class get locked up in eighth grade, you know, for having nickel bags of weed. My yeah, crazy. Kicking my aunts and uncles out the house all the time. So I was afraid of cannabis. That was not my lane. But, you know, get to the NBA and see my teammates, you know, as from my rookie year, like seeing some of the best players on my team smoking hella weed and being the most productive guys in practice every day change that, you know, let me know that the stigma, you know, of like, yeah. you smoke, you know, it's a gateway drug, you, you become unproductive, you get couch locked, all these different things, you know, that wasn't the truth. So, you know, fast forward to my 79-year-old grandmother and just telling her about some articles that I would read. And then you know, I always say this was God, because you think, man, she was born in 1931. And a lot of times, mm. you know, the people are set in their ways, right? They don't do anything different, right? Yep. They, of course, right? And, you know, for her to be like, you know what, I'm willing to try it because I'm in so much pain. And, you know, after she tries it, the first thing she does is go downstairs and read her Bible. And like that's when I walked up on her and she was like crying. And she said it was the first time she read the words in her Bible in over three years. So that's what inspired me to, you know, take a deeper dive into cannabis. Uh, ended up making an investment, you know, six months later. And, you know, in 2014 is when I got my first official license where I was official, official. And, you know, we decided to name the company Viola, which is my grandmother's name. So oh, wow. that's what really inspired, uh, you know, me and naming the company after my grandmother was seeing, you know, how cannabis helped an 80 year old woman, you know, pretty much have better quality of life. And, you know, she's still with us today. She lives in Fairville, North Carolina. Um, you know, she likes edibles. Um, she <laughs> me likes too. And, you know what I'm saying? Those are the things that she used to, you know, deal with a lot of the ailments that she still deal with at, at her age. Man, that's a, that's a crazy dope story. You you said one thing. I gotta. I just gotta chime in on it. I picked up on it. You said that you were trying to figure out if you belong. At what point in the NBA? What, what was that moment where you realized, oh, I belong here. I can play with these guys. It was my second year, my rookie year. Um, rookie year was tough because it was fast, right? It was a lockout year, so oh, I didn't man. have I didn't have like the you know I didn't have like the real training camps and the whole just you know how they kind of bring you along. It was just like boom, we was in the season, we playing like four games in five nights. I wasn't playing because you know they had no time to develop a young player, right? But that summer I went home. You know I, I was a little down on myself, but you know guys like Anthony Mason, God bless the dead, Malik Silly, God bless the dead. Like these are guys that I was working out with every single day in the summer. And, you know, they were one competing against me, but also like giving me confidence. Yeah. You just saying like, young fella, you got some game, bro. You keep, keep that up. You got to like work on this right here. And that'd be a little. So that next year, as when I came back my second year, although I got hurt, I ended up hurting my back that year, but I was on a tear, you know what I'm saying? In the beginning of that season. And that's when I realized like, oh, I, I figured it out. 
you know what I'm saying? Like, I definitely belong in the league. That's what's up. So I want to talk about each of the companies in the Harrington Group, if we don't mind. Viola Brands and Harrington Wellness. What do these companies do? And talk about the broader vision behind these companies, particularly merging a more standard Canada's venture with a wellness venture. What's the thinking behind that? And by the way, I love the intersectionality of that. That's pretty dope. Yeah, man. So, you know, what really, once again, you know, I, I make a lot of decisions off, you know, situations that I'm kind of put in, right? And I've always my, you know, I just feel like since I was one of the first guys to kind of jump out and really fight, you know, for cannabis and especially for players use. And after, you know, a career of 16 years for seven of those years, you know, uh, every day I took, you know, two anti-inflammatories in the morning, one at night, you know, mm. just to, be able to feel good, just to be able to go out and play. And I knew there were side effects, but at the end of the day, as I always say, I'm first generation money, bro. Like it ain't yeah. no option. It ain't like another job that I can go to and say, okay, I'm about to make millions of dollars, right? So I had to take that risk. You know what I'm saying? And now when I look at it though, like the risk that I did take and thinking about, you know, now that we're realizing all the medicinal benefits of cannabis, you know, I just felt like I wanted to kind of lead the charge with that. And, you know, the first thing that I wanted to do obviously was get a deal with the NBA. You know, I wanted to be able to provide products for my peers, for my brothers. I know what they're looking for. I know what they're dealing with. And I just feel like I'm the best person, you know, to provide that for them. And and the, uh, the idea of the company is to be owned by mostly athletes, right? I want this to be a company about us. And, you know, uh, when I went to the NBA to talk about partnership, you know, Viola, since it was so forward facing as a THC uh, plant touching brand, they felt like they could not align with it. So they was like, if you come with something a little different and it's just, you know, CBD related, you know, let's have a conversation. So that's what, you know, that's why I started Harrington Wellness. Um, the first product line underneath Harrington Wellness is called Replay. So it's replaycbd.com if you want to go check it out. But it's uh, right now our hero product is Topicals. Um, you know, with a, a muscle rub for soreness, we're doing a total body and then we're doing a foot and ankle. Now, that's another thing that players deal with is the foot and ankle issues that a lot of times just kind of get overlooked. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's like providing, you know, I feel like a cream that can give comfort, you know, for the athletes feet, whatever. But, you know, the intersection for me, why it was important was just, you know, like I mentioned about my story, because I know that most MB, most professional athletes in general, one being 100% is never, it never happens, right? That's like what LeBron, you, LeBron just said that and he got in trouble for it. He was like, man, I'm never going to be 100% again. Never, you, you literally, you can't be, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It, 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 it's too much impact. It's constant. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it, it, it never stops. You know what I'm saying? Especially if you're serious about your craft, you know, LeBron, why he's so special is because he never gets out of game shape. You know, most yeah. players to some off, get gained 20, 30 pounds in a month before the season. They try to knock it off in the training camp, right? He doesn't do that, you know? So it's constantly, constant. And you see, that's the reason why he's had his success. But yeah, that's my thing is like with athletes is like, look, there is alternative ways to medicate yourself. You don't have to take these pharmaceutical opioids and prescription pills that these teams are pushing on us. Uh, you know, we could use topicals, we could use tinctures, we could use edibles, you know. And when you talk about, you know, quality of life and as these teams always claim that they care so much about us, you know, if you care about us, then you should want us to have the best options available to us to deal with the ailments and the issues that we deal with. And cannabis is one of those things. And, you know, that's the reason why, you know, I have, you know, Aaron 
replay or from Harrington Wellness and then Viola being separate. But eventually they will come together. You know, of course. And that, that brings me to my next question, because I'm in the cannabis business my spe- my space myself. And I know there's a lot of interest from people about how they can break into the industry. I'm going to get my my email and stuff's going to be flooded with how do we do this? Every time I put some I, we have a, a grow in Oklahoma now. Um, I'm working with Raekwon and and some others. And every time I get a, a post something that my email floods and people want to know about it, but it's still an illegal substance under federal law. So talk about the experience of starting and growing a business that is part of a highly regulated industry that's still illegal under federal law. Talk about the state licensing process, the insurance, the bonding, the background checks, the security, just like what you think about when you go into this space and everything that you have to manage, because you can't just go out there and, and wing it because you'll be in trouble. No, not at all, bro. And I mean, you got to think about I mean, I've, I've been doing this 10 years, right? So exactly. I, that sounds crazy. Yeah, I was <laughs> popular. That's popular. Everybody like, I'm in the weed business. Yeah. So like in the beginning for me, man, it was a little scary, right? But, you know, I just felt I had enough confidence that <laughs> in our government, right, in Colorado, that if they complied and did things according to their rules and laws, we would be fine, right? But there was always that issue for me, like, you know, myself compared to Joe Blow being in the cannabis space, like, you know, we could bust him or Al. We're going to bust Al because he's a bigger headline. Right. So I was always afraid of that in the beginning. Right. So like nothing was ever in my name. Everything was in my co-founder's name. And I was just kind of like an investor, you know, to your question, like the difficulty in applying for these licenses is, is very, it depends on where you are. Right. So like mm-hmm. in the beginning, you know, it wasn't as difficult. There was this certain uh, interpretations of regulations that, you know, was critical in, in a lot of decisions that you made as you, you know, built your business out or apply for your business. But now when you look at it now, like, uh, you know, especially like in places like New York and New Jersey and different things like that, like, bro, you have to literally put a full team of people exactly. together. You got to have lawyers. There will be lawyers, as they say, right? You got to you gotta put literally a real team together. Um, by the time I feel like after you lock in your real estate, uh, your architectural designs, your security uh, plans, uh, community redevelopment, all these different things, locking all that in, bro. Like you, you're probably excess of a couple million dollars already. I'm looking at that New Jersey price tag right now. We're putting five and a half million in, in Newark, New Jersey. Exactly. So when you think about like it's expensive, right? So it just depends like what, how you trying to enter. You know what I'm saying? And kind of where your bag is, you know, when you come to the table, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Advice. But I always say, like, I think that, you know, we are in the beginning stages of cannabis. So we're still pioneering the industry. So I think it's not too late for people to humble themselves sometimes and take a job in the space and kind of open it. You know what I'm saying? And kind of figure out what nuances or what things you think that you can bring, you know, to the industry that uh, could benefit you, you know what I'm saying? Because I think that jobs will be, you know, endless in this space. Uh, I know they are trying to bring a lot of tech to it, but it's really not working because of the way that this plan has grown is different than, you know, most ag, you know what I'm saying? And if you want to have quality and different things like that, I feel like you always need those personal touch points or whatever. But, you know, my thing is really, you know, if you're trying to get in, just really understanding uh, the language around the applications that you're applying for, uh, you know, trying to figure out a way to put resources together to obviously get to the point of acquiring the license. And I always, yeah. like, you know, once you have the license in your hand, you're at a totally different point, you know what I'm saying, for even investors, because now the risk is not as high, right? Yeah, you know yeah. You're more investable. So I always say sometimes, like, 
you know, don't always, you don't always have to have it always built out to the finish line, but sometimes you kind of got to just start and get it to a certain point where you can actually now get in front of, you know, potential investors or potential athletes or whatever, and be able to present them with a real business opportunity. Let's talk about equity because you're obviously a, a black cannabis entrepreneur. We all know that, and you mentioned it, we talked about it, black folk have paid the price for cannabis being illegal, but like so many other things, we're not reaping the benefit of it becoming legal in many states. Talk about the unique challenges of black cannabis entrepreneurs, and are there any states right now that are doing equity right? And I really want to know kind of your opinion on this because I'm still learning, but a lot. it seems as if even in certain states, they're still shutting black folk out of the process, either through having to have some insurance or requirements that we just can't meet because we don't come in the game with the same or come in with the criminal background. So what states are doing it right in your opinion? Yeah, I'm be honest, like none of them are doing it right yet. You know, I think that, and I think that's the issue, right? Is because these states are so, uh, that's what I'm looking for. Like they're- uh, Regressive probably. They're regressive, but then they're like almost like prideful in the respect, like they don't want to like, take a program that is pretty much close from another state and kind of add their thing to it to make it better. Like they're always trying to figure out how to make this situation better. And a lot of times they put it in a worse place. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, so it's crazy. So it's like, yes, like, you know, but, you know, I think New York has an opportunity to kind of be the first, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because with New York, they have a funding source attached to the opportunity. And like, that's the main thing, right? Because that's where I feel like, you know, to your point is like, that's what shuts us out, right? It's like, you know, you need this insurance, you need that. Like, I mean, I've had my own personal social equity here in California. Like I was, we were promised, um, you know, a, a permit, you know, through a PCM process in the city of Los Angeles. And they literally just denied it the other day after having us operating under this for the last 18 months that it was done. You know what I'm saying? So when you think about what if, you know, and shit, we put a lot of money and resources to that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm really sick to my stomach about it. Have you picked up the phone and called Garcetti yet? I mean, I need to call the mayor or something. What we need to do? I don't think it's going to help, bro. It's like, this is a clown show a little bit. But, (laughs) you know, yeah, it's just like, no, a lot of it's just not right. But like I said, the reason some of the positives I see in New York is the fact that they have a funding source. Um, you know, they expunging records, right, which mm-hmm. will now allow people who normally there's a barrier. Like if you have any felonies or different things like that, you can't participate in this space. But expunging records will now give, uh, you know, mostly people of color who is mostly a harm from the war on drugs opportunity to participate, you know. And then even when you think about, you know, when I think social equity is a little wrong, is like when they try to prioritize black people or not black people, people of color that were locked up compared to a young black entrepreneur like yourself. You know what I'm saying? Because like my thing with that is like, you know, a lot of people that were just recently incarcerated, man, like no knock on them because we definitely helped with, you know, re-entry and stuff like that to get them back on their feet. But a lot of them were just institutionalized, man. Like what do they really know about business? You know what I'm saying? I feel like what happens is you put them in a position to be taken advantage of because they just don't know. You know what I'm saying? And now deals with these predatory investors that, you know, you don't read the fine print, but, you know, after a two, three year span, literally they you out for a couple hundred thousand dollars, right? Or, this- or they, or they just, or they making, they making $6 million a year and they giving you half a percent because they needed a minority, a minority component to their licensing. Exactly. So those are, so when you think about it from that perspective, those are the things that is wrong with social equity because, you know, this opportunity is literally supposed to be an opportunity, you know, to, you know, create 
wealth in the community, right? And if, if that's how we're operating, that'll never happen. So you, you're a member of the Minority Cannabis Business Association, and you pledge to create 100 black billion millionaires. Well, hell, let's just call it billionaires. What the hell? In the cannabis industry, talk about the work of your uh, incubator and the and your role with the Minority Cannabis Business Association, and talking about equity and putting black cannabis entrepreneurs at the forefront of advocacy. Well, you know, I was on the board there. I'm no longer on the board. I'm just a member now. But yeah, our, our goal was literally to you know, use all of our experiences to, you know, educate, uplift, and empower uh, people of color, right? And give them necessary tools to actually uh, at least figure out how to get into the space and participate. And then people that are actually in the space also have resources where we can all kind of, you know, collaborate and build with each other to kind of learn from some of the mistakes that others have kind of actually dealt with, you know? And I always think that that's very, very, very important when you talk about uh, industry like ours, you know, it's essentially, you know, prohibition and we're, you know, can, we're writing the history book as we're living it, right? So being able to tap in and work with others is, I think, is amazing. And then from the incubator program, you know, what we've done is we've tried to, you know, we haven't been able to really incubate startups, but we've been able to incubate people that have actually already started, right? And what they need is they may need a small investment. Uh, to scale, maybe get a couple more lights in their facility or, uh, you know, maybe they need back office help. You know what I'm saying? Maybe. Man, look, if y'all going in this business, man, get y'all a lawyer and an accountant, get y'all somebody who understands regulation, please. I mean, that's when he say back office, that's what he mean. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'm happy to explain that. But yeah, so, you know, that's what we've been doing, bro. And, you know, sometimes it's just, you know, being affiliated with a company that, you know, has a track record, you know, saying gives people credibility and allows them to have, you know, meetings from a different perspective compared if they were, you know, all alone. So that's what I do, man. I, you know, I'll give up my personal time to be able to go help these people. And, you know, the one, you know, our so far, the most successful incubator person we've had is a gentleman named Jarrell Howard out of Martin, Tennessee. Uh, he has a farm that his family has owned over 80 years. Uh, it has to stay within the bloodline of the uh, forever until the world's ends, pretty much. And, you know, he was able to convince, you know, his board, which was four older women, aging from the range of 78 years old to 96. And he had to go in front of them and say, look, you know, I don't think we should be growing corn and wheat and soy on this property anymore. We need to turn it to hemp CBD and let's see what we can do. And you know, that farm had did over the last 40 years, $939,000 in revenue. And this year we're expecting to do $3.5 million. Crazy. A piece of property, you know what I'm saying? And not even fully built out, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, it's just really about that, man. Just, you know, just trying to figure out like how I could just use my experience to help others grow faster. And, you know, we also do partnerships as we apply in these new states. You know, most states you need like somebody that's- Gotta there. be local, gotta be local. So, you know, we partner with that. And a lot of times the people I partner with is, you know, either uh, either my, some of my ex-teammates or like some of my ex-teammates homeboys that I know that ran the Boys and Girls Club, different things like that. Because when I think about how we, you know, when we fill out these applications and you have to have community redevelopment and stuff, and I, I just, it, it, it baffles me how these companies get these perfect scores when they've never been to that community, right? So like, how is your plan so good? Because these plans to me, need to be customized to where we are, what these communities need. And that's why I try to tap in with those people because I feel like we have them working with us will allow us to have the biggest impact and the most meaningful impact in those communities because they're from there and they know what the needs are. 
before we get you out of here, let's talk about the politics of it. I mean, I'm a huge supporter of the vice president and the president of the United States, but he's been anything but clear on what he wants to do with, with marijuana. I know you've been working with Senator Schumer and Senator Booker on comprehensive uh, cannabis reform. Where are we around the 60 votes to legalize it or reschedule it? What does that mean? And then are we ever going to be able to bank with cannabis? I mean, like, can we, are we going to ever be, get to the point where we can cross state lines and do the stuff we need to do with not move weed across state lines? I got enough clients who still mailing weed from California. They still will indict your ass for mailing it to somebody, to your aunt's house. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. But like, are we ever going to get to the to the banking aspect of this as well? I think so. Um, you know, they they there are some forms of banking, and it's opening up slowly, right? You know, for us, we bank mostly through like credit unions and teacher unions or whatever. I will say they make a lot of money because they charge us crazy amounts to have bank accounts, and then oh they my charge- god, they people then it's it's. It's almost predatory what these banks are charging us to, to keep our, our weed money in it. I Shout did. out to all my bankers, whatever. But them them rates are kind of high. They're taking a big risk as well. You know what I'm saying? Because they have to make sure that that money is not coming from the cartels and different things like that. So I guess when you think about like the, enfor- the enforcement or the compliance of it, I'm sure that those fees are definitely spent on that. You know what I'm saying? But I get it. And for us, it's important that we need banking, right? We need to be able to write checks. We need to be able to move a lot faster. Um, especially in regards of, you know, just being able to actually run the business. So I would say I think that there's a safe bank act that, you know, they're proposing that could potentially open up banking. You know, like you said, you know, Chuck Schumer, Cory Booker, all these different politicians are definitely working towards federal legalization. But, yeah. you know, anything with one thing that you learn with just government is that no one's ever on the same page. Right. And I think a lot of times they fight just because they just don't want the other person to be right. You know what I'm saying? Even so to answer your question, where do I think we are? I think federal legalization is coming. Um, is it going to be a lot sooner than some people think? You know, I've had people say, you know, 10 years from now, eight years from now, but it could be as soon as two to three years from now, potentially. Or I think definitely the next president that's going to roll in. And, you know, to your point, you know, Biden and, you know, Kamala, obviously they used cannabis on their trail a lot where they were so supportive of it and different things like that. And now, obviously, everything under the sun is the reason why they can't address it right now. But you know what? To be honest, you know, it's it's actually a good thing a little bit because, you know, once federal legalization does lift, the type of money that's going to, um, you know, if, if rush into the market is going to be substantial. And I think it's going to kill the small guy. Right. You know, I yeah. think that you know, when I look at things in the world, you mean, like, I mean, right now, I mean, it's hard as hell to compete with. What is it? Uh, Mad Men right now. Any of them. You know what I'm saying? Just because they, one, they have first movers advantage, you know, obviously they're well capitalized, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So these are different challenges, but, you know, I think that, you know, with legalization coming, you know, and bigger companies coming in and oh, what I was going to say, I'm sorry, I was going to go to was Amazon, right? You see that Amazon just said the other day that they're no longer testing and all that, but it was like a, it was like an announcement, right? Because for me, I think that's the setup because Amazon will want to deliver the weed. So I'm sure. <laughs> oh, I I see what you're thinking about that 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 blunt five minutes ago is working now. That's a good thought. There you go. If you go look that up. I guarantee they got lobbyists right now in every state lobbying for distribution to look some shape, form, or fashion the way that they distribute right now, which is the most efficient in the world. Right. So like these are Se- the second that- second most behind Chick Fil A. But yeah, your point is still well taken. <laughs> 
<laughs> so like like you know so for me like being in the industry every day and watching how fast and the mergers and all these things happening like that's what i see so that's why i always say like as much as everybody like legalize it legalize it like it has to be legalized the proper way because if it goes too fast they're gonna leave all of us behind nah, and, they not. i mean i can't man i'm gonna get a i'm gonna get one of my weed alerts and it's gonna say that Harrington Brands just signs a half a billion dollar deal with Amazon. That's what it's going to say. But I'm going I'm to I'm drink some liquor for you. Listen, before oh, I keep saying before I let you go, I still got two more questions real quick. So we we talked about the government and them, them being slow. It seems like major sports and professional sports are moving slow, too. I mean, and to be even to, to add a little bit more, Major League Baseball and NHL have been the most progressive when it comes to cannabis. When will the NFL and all of these professional sports leagues finally catch up? I mean, I think they're there now, bro. Like most of them aren't testing. And then obviously if you do get, if you do get test positive is no, nothing happens. Right. So, you know, they, even with the NBA, like their approach was, and I get it right. You know, because, you know, you just still don't know how fans feel about it and whatever, but um, you know, but the fact that they just saying like, they're not testing this year. So that means yeah. going to next year. But when I think about, <laughs> Everything that happened this season, you had no issue. Nobody got caught smoking weed, any DUIs with weed, nothing. So my 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 opinion on that is that means that the players are professionals about when they consume cannabis, right? They probably doing it at home after the game, you know, and which is the time where you want them to do it. And I feel like that's when they obviously they get the best, the most benefit out of cannabis is during those moments, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that it, it's on the way, bro. I think that, you know, NFL, I think they just signed off on, um, you know, a budget towards testing, yeah. uh, you know, and different things like that. So I would say professional sports is literally right there. CBD will be first, right? That'll be the of first to give up with. And then I think THC products will be right behind that, especially as the technology side of cannabis continues to evolve in regards to how we're going to be able to consume cannabis. So my, for real last question, cause you know, I'm a, I am a, um, we just start back my lifetime league lifetime, uh, July 12th. I'm a perennial lifetime all-star. I just want you to know that I'm a two-time league MVP. Okay. I, I, if you pull up the stats online for those people who who want to know, you know, I do average 14 and 14, about six assists. But it's not about me right now. Who's winning this thing? Where 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 did Chris Paul get his? Chris Paul is is 52 years old and still one of the best point guards in the league. And does anybody beat does anybody beat a healthy Brooklyn or is we just out here just doing this for shits and giggles? I especially with LeBron without LeBron James. <laughs> LeBron James obviously in the in the conversation and obviously without, you know, will Steve Curry uh go <laughs> out of it. I think that Brooklyn healthy for sure, even with them, I still would have had given them the edge, but obviously it would have been a series and you never know. But healthy Brooklyn versus everybody else who ain't even close, bro. It's just, you know, when you think about playoff basketball historically, is when the game slows down, right? So if you watch all season, you see threes and you see, you know, 140 possessions in the playoffs. And especially as the series go along, those 140 possessions go to 120 and then end up like around 100, 90 to 100. You know what I'm saying? And when you think about the game slowing down, that means that that's because it's getting stops. But when you got three monsters, bro, that are one-on-one wizards, like just, I mean, I mean, just they just score. They score. They score in a flap jacket. They elite. Like they they're elite at what they do. They're not just good. They're not great. They're elite. So when you think about that, you know, of course, you know, like they got to play some defense. But yeah, like no, they don't. The other team got to play defense for real. I mean, and they got. They, I mean, they got a cheat code out there. Blake Griffin playing like he. 
25 again. He's sandbagging the Pistons for the last two years. Man, I, I'm just – and then, but, I mean, so talk to me about this real quick. So Giannis and Paul George, I mean, is that because of playoff basketball? I mean, they 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 ha- they are amazing. And now, I had I had Magic Johnson on here, and Ma- Magic said he ain't had no faith in the Clippers because of Paul George. But – he really said that. He said that. Been going. Man, he just went in on David. Yeah, David, David that, day. He just yeah, that's he older, bro. You get older, you just don't give it. You just don't care. It's just a, that's your old uncle, man. So, so is that why? Is that why Giannis and Paul have so much problems in the playoffs? Just because it's, it, it's so playoff P. Him, I can't explain. You know what I'm saying? I know last year he said something about mental health and being in the bubble really affected him or whatever. So. You know, obviously mental health is now a big thing that guys are not, you know, is ashamed to talk about. So if that's the case, then I get it. But he has no excuse because outside of that to me is because he got so much game. Like he got everything. He got handles. He can shoot. He's long. Right. Giannis, as great as he is, he's very limited. You know what I'm saying? Like, why he's so good is because all season he plays somebody once every couple months. You, you don't really get a chance to really game plan for him. So all that dribbling full court and dunking works. But now it was a series, and now we can pay attention to all your weaknesses. Like, we know you can't go left. We know you can't do it. We know you can't shoot the three. You're going to get exposed every time in a series because it's, it's, it's repetition. It's like every night I'm somebody going to sit on your hand and not let you do it. So – I, I would say that's where it's just that he's limited. And I just think it just keeps catching up to him in the playoffs because at some point the teams can really just focus and zero in on him. But Paul, man, like he just got so much game. It's just, I don't know. We can't put our finger on it why in the playoffs he just no, can't. No, you can. I mean, you can. Some people got it and some people don't. I mean, he just he just ain't, he's not, you got to be a dog in the playoffs. I mean, then Paul's not a dog. But he's a great basketball player. And that that happens all the time. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. So, I, you know, anyway. I've always been defending just because he played for the Pacers, right? You know what I'm saying? So, like, <laughs> yeah. I was a Pacer and he played balled out. So I've always been a fan of his. But so I, I have faith in Paul, man. And, you know, one day he's going to be able to put it all the way together. But until then, <laughs> I agree with what you're talking about. Man, thank you so much for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. I'm, I am, I'm probably going to work out tonight, get ready four weeks out from the season. So, I got to get back in shape. I, I stay in playing shape. Me and me and LBJ, we've learned that we got to stay in playing shape. But thank you for joining, brother. Have a good one, man. Thanks for having me, bro. Appreciate you. All right. Before I let you go, I wanted to talk about Simone Biles, uh, specifically about her dominance of world gymnastics, despite relatively little mainstream sports coverage of just how dominating she's been in her sport before we even get to this summer's Olympics in Tokyo. In case you've missed it, just over a week ago, she won a record seventh U.S. gymnastic championship. She won every all-around competition she's entered since 2013. For those of you bad at math, she hasn't lost in eight years. I can't name a single athlete in the world that can say that. She'll be walking into Tokyo, favorite to win just about every event that she'll enter, and she'll very likely be the first person to win back-to-back gold medals in the all-around competition in 50 years. That is what dominance looked like. And I can only imagine that the coverage of this dominance and the recognition that we're watching a once-in-a-lifetime talent in Simone Biles will be reflected in our coverage this summer. I won't hold my breath, though. But if anyone has earned this coverage, it's Simone, who is arguably one of the greatest athletes in American history in any sport. 
And that's that on that. We'll see you guys on Thursday. Okay.